0: to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for metamodern mutants interested in meditation, awakening, emptiness, post, non, and un-Buddhism, the inconceivable, hardcore dharma, the Witcher, and more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'll be speaking with Michael Owens. Michael Charles Owens is a Buddhist teacher, translator, and author, he uses a sutra-based curriculum that draws from a variety of traditions to teach the history, philosophy, and practice of Buddhism. Michael teaches regularly for the San Francisco Dharma Collective, and he also runs Lotus Underground, a repository of his teaching activities, audio recordings, and writings. And now the episode that I call Meditating with Buddhist Sutras with Michael Owens. Michael, welcome to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. So we have met through the San Francisco Dharma Collective, where you are a teacher and have a very, very popular class in sutra study, which for such a radical, weird Dharma center, which is, you know, doesn't have a guiding teacher and doesn't ascribe to any particular form of Buddhism or even any particular religion, for that matter, and has like my death sangha and Eric Davis with psychedelic sangha. There's a lot of, you know, very far out there stuff happening. So it's always been a wonderful and kind of like beautiful surprise to me that there's also this sort of hardcore roots Buddhist sutra study thing going on there where you're like busting out the Chinese characters and you're doing the real thing. So, first of all, that's fascinating and congratulations. I love that that class exists. Thank you. I usually can't make it to the class, so I listen to your SoundCloud recordings mm-hmm. of your sutra studies. So just to plug that for a minute, that's, at, where is that?
1: The SoundCloud uh, Lotus-Underground. The Lotus Underground, that's yes. right, with M.C. Owens. Yep.
0: See, really, your middle initial? It is, Charles. Yes. <laughs> I got lucky. <laughs> so yes, M.C. Owens with the Lotus Underground, if you want to listen to Michael's, I guess it's not a podcast, but recordings of your teaching. Yeah. Yeah, so there you are. How did you end up? teaching sutras at the San Francisco Dharma Collective. What was, between birth (laughs) and, and there, what happened?
1: Well, I started as a student, you know, college, graduate school. Kind of always knew I wanted to be a teacher from a young age, but as my major changed, what I was going to teach kept changing, eventually wound up in history, then that turned to philosophy. And then finally, I heard about this thing called religious studies. So I finally majored in religious studies, and then went on and did a master's degree in Buddhist studies. And that's where I really started honing in on Buddhism as an area to specialize in. And then I eventually wound up at Princeton in a doctoral program, studying medieval Chinese Buddhist Taoist magic. Basically, that was like the focus of my study. And all through that. And then once I got a teaching position at Hunter College in New York, and I was teaching classes in Buddhism, it hit me from an early time that the sutras were underrepresented in kind of American culture. And what I mean by that is is that it occurred to me very early on that everybody knew that for Christianity, you have the Bible, and for Islam, you have the Quran, and for Buddhism, you have... The Heart Sutra. Yeah, The Heart Sutra for some, you know, and, and that's where it gets tricky. And what I thought was interesting is that even though there's not one particular sutra that all Buddhists agree on, there's this format, you know, structure, which is the thus have I heard, once the Buddha was staying in such and such a place. I got really interested in the dialectical nature of sutras, the question and answer, Again, having come from philosophy, this was like Plato, but even better because it was more soteriological or aimed towards liberation and release. And so I just kind of kept going deeper in my own studies, began translating sutras. And pretty much I eventually made it my curriculum that I just use sutras. And I'm happy to hear you use the word roots because that's the way I think of it, of just getting to the roots of it. And I just basically just started studying and teaching sutras in a kind of a unique way might kind of call it mystical in a way because I approach them a little bit differently than other people do, or at least some other people.
0: Yeah. So, you know, there's always this tension in religious studies department between the hardcore academics who are digging into, you know, scriptural deconstruction, figuring out when stuff's happening. And then there's sort of the secret meditators or the secret people who really believe And, you know, some of my friends who were very hardcore Hindus had to actually like hide the fact that they really actually meditated and used mantras and believed this stuff in their religious departments as doctoral scholars because that would have been a mark against them. So I'm curious, here you are studying like Chinese Buddhist magic. Were you coming at that from actually being into Chinese Buddhist magical practice? Mm. Or is it just so weird and fascinating that you were into the academic end of it only?
1: Yeah, no, I was a good scholar in that I didn't believe in this stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I was studying it. It's interesting, actually, that I studied Buddhism for years and years and years before I even sat before I even did meditation, I was deep in the study of it. So actually, my personal path took a shift when I started practicing Buddhism, started sitting, started doing these things. So to answer your question, though, when I was studying the Buddhist magic, I wasn't doing it in that way. I was strictly linguistic at that point.
0: Fascinating. And that seems kind of typical. It's sort mm. of interesting. So how did you actually start
1: sitting? hmm I started going to Japan during my graduate studies, and through a friend, a Japanese friend that I was staying with in Aomari in the north, he just introduced me to a Zen priest at a temple there, and the priest put me in a corner, and I didn't speak any Japanese at the time, and he didn't speak any English, so he just kind of pointed <laughs> to sit and then he went on the other side of the room and rang the bells and I wasn't quite sure what to do and 45 minutes later he came over and shook my hand <laughs> and then that was it and something happened in that 45 minutes where I came out feeling so different and I was like oh this is what it's all about and then from that point on I started spending a lot more time in retreat I started staying in monasteries And I was still a graduate student and I got lucky to do these language exchanges where I was doing deep language study, but I had the option of either going to a university in China or going to Taiwan and staying in a monastery and living like a Buddhist monk, shaved head and all, and doing my language study. And so at this point, I thought, well, that sounds perfect.
0: <laughs> so, wow. So you ended
1: up at a monastery in Taiwan. Yeah. How long were you there for? This would be during the summers. So during my time at Princeton, I was student during the fall and all of that. And then during the summer and winter recesses, I would go to Taiwan. Fabulous.
0: And does Taiwan have, pardon my ignorance here, something that would be equivalent to like Koyasan? Mount Koi in Japan, which is sort of the Japanese version of Vajrayana, very, very magical oriented and mantra oriented and so on. Is there something like that in Taiwan?
1: Not that I know of. There's a lot of a quasi Vajrayana practice. And I say quasi because it's pretty hybridized with a, a kind of what would be called Taoism, some Taoist magical elements in there. And then as far as the practice in Taiwan, you know, it's a lot like, or I find it that it's a lot like Japanese pure land or even Japanese Zen, where once you really start looking, you start noticing esoteric elements everywhere. And this, from my knowledge, has to do with centuries and centuries of those kind of traditions mixing and mixing to the point where it's almost like you'll see bijas or siddham syllables and things like that. In Taiwan, you'll see them in temples of all sorts, of all Buddhist sorts. So I didn't see any specifically Vajrayana practice, but I saw a lot of hints of it
0: everywhere. Right, so elements of tantrism that had kind of filtered in over the centuries. Yeah. Right, so bijas are the seed syllables of mantras in Sanskrit, right? mm-hmm. which I think it's fascinating to see other languages try to work with
1: that. True. You know? Including our own. Yes, including our own, (laughs) definitely. Okay,
0: so that must have been totally amazing. Tell me about your time as a monk in Taiwan.
1: Yeah, I guess what happened was, is from that first sit in Japan, that's when I started sitting regularly and started to develop a regular Zazen, seated Zen practice or Dhyana practice. And then these extended retreats in the monastery, which were really eye-opening, especially because this monastery is what they would call a pure land Zen, which is sort of a, a hybrid. It's pretty common to find both in mainland China and Taiwan, which is basically they'll have a devotional hall and a Zen hall. And sometimes you go in the Zen hall and do silent sitting, and then various either rituals or various holidays or celebrations, you go to the recitation hall and do tons of chanting, pilgrimage. Now I've pilgrimaged a lot, but in the monastery, a pilgrimage would be a three steps and a bow pilgrimage. So that practice of taking three short steps and then doing a full bodily prostration, mm-hmm. standing up three steps, full body prostration, and doing that kind of up a small hill, right. <laughs> but it takes five hours to do that. In terms of my study mixing with practice, it was fascinating because I was not only coming into a, deeper Buddhist practice, but I was also a student of religion that was for my whole life rather non-religious in that sense. No sense of a higher power in that way, but even no no sense of the validity of practice or the validity of any of this stuff. And so I felt like those summers in Taiwan not only exposed me to deeper Buddhism, but just deeper religion, if you will, which again was sort of odd for somebody who had been studying it for so long yeah. to not have that kind of more personal experience with it.
0: And were you mainly taking language and sutra study classes there? or what uh, you- I
1: was actually teaching sutras there. Wow. Yeah. So I was doing my language study, but at this point we're talking, you know, I'm working on my fluency at that point because, you know, my classwork was kind of over at that point and I had been teaching sutras at that point for a number of years. And so I wound up teaching a course one winter for the female monastic college so this particular buddhist monastery had a male monastic college and a female monastic college and for some reason the female monastic college invited me to do a lecture series on the heart sutra and it was surprising to me actually to learn how little they kind of knew about the heart sutra at least from a historical linguistic perspective which you know of course now i realize that's just one facet of the Heart Sutra is, its history and its language. So I kind of shared that with them, which is getting much deeper into the language, sharing the Sanskrit. A lot of the Chinese in the Heart Sutra is actually transliterated Sanskrit. Like the mantra and so on. Yeah, or even a word like Anottara Samyak Sambodhi, which is Anyo Dolo Samya Samputi. Right. And for the most part, I learned that a lot of Chinese, even Chinese Buddhist monastics weren't quite sure what anyo duolo samyao samputi is. Because it actually in Chinese is just a mouthful. It's not, it's
0: just a bunch but, of sounds. Yeah.
1: Right? And it, it kind of means, seemingly, it means about the same that anuttara samyak would mean to uh, just somebody on the street. <laughs> and so I actually felt really, I was very grateful for that opportunity to share that with these monastics, to enrich their practice and to see their eyes light up with a text that they're so familiar with, but there was something they hadn't seen in it, and I could share that with them, that meant the world to me, really, really too.
0: And so what was happening to your meditation practice at that time?
1: You know, my meditation practice has always been rather, I'll just say, therapeutic. And what I mean by that is, is that I sort of use my seated practice as a way to calm down, a way for self-maintenance, to reflect, and... In many ways, I personally haven't gone very deep in the sense of deep Jianic meditative states. I haven't displayed any Siddhis or superpowers to my knowledge. It's really just a straightforward, calming down kind of practice. And so what had changed over that period was a pleasure in it, I suppose.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. So you settled into a really comfortable and helpful relationship with your sitting?
1: Yeah. It ceased being difficult or a chore, or you know, or even like going to the gym. It's like you feel good after you go to the gym, but do you always want to go kind of a thing? And so I would always like know, well, if I sit, I'll feel better afterwards. But I didn't really want to do the sit. I didn't want to go to the gym. And after that kind of deep experience of both doing extended periods in the zendo but also just living for the whole summer with monastics and living on the same hard bed they're sleeping on waking up at the same ungodly hour eating the same meager meal i don't know i guess for my overactive american mind that needed constant stimulation i learned to be a lot happier with less And then finally, actually happier with less. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Right. So I'm curious, speaking of overactive American minds, you know, why should any American meditator, Buddhist meditator really care about these sutras? I mean, in the Theravada world in America, they're often talking about suttas and getting into some of the Pali. And, you know, if you're a serious Vipassana meditator, you're going to hear Dharma talks about various suttas now and again. But it seems like except for the Heart Sutra and, you know, the very short, very pithy and even usually reduced to like one paragraph Heart Sutra, you don't seem to hear about these other sutras a lot. And so something I've picked up from you that I really enjoy is just your love and enthusiasm about these uh,
1: Mahayana sutras. So why
0: should we care? Mm -hmm.
1: Well, a few things. One of the things early on I made it my mission to kind of popularize sutras, you know, because philosophical discourses like Plato's dialogues and things like that are so lauded in our culture as like the pinnacle of thinking you know so first of all i wanted everybody to know that there was a huge body of literature out there (laughs) huge you know that makes the platonic dialogues like look like scraps of paper compared to these tomes of sutras so first of all i just wanted people to know that they're out there and then i wanted to get people excited about what's in them because i do think there's ideas and concepts and a profundity in there that I think is really lacking in our world today.
0: You know, when I was in college, I had one class in Buddhist history. It was in early Buddhist history, but I remember the teacher, Paul Muller Ortega, who's a famous spiritual teacher now, he just had this offhand comment where he said, 99% of the Chinese Buddhist canon is untranslated into English, and we have no idea what's in
1: there. Is that true? That is true. <laughs> yeah, when you go in the library and you look at the Taisho Shinshu Daizokyo, which is the whole Mahayana canon in Chinese, it's, it takes a, you know bookcase after bookcase after bookcase after bookcase. It's like a hundred volume set. And these are Bible-thin pages with, you know, they just go on and on. And of all of that, yeah, a fraction, you know, maybe a hundred sutras have been translated. And then... You know, you'll have, uh, you know, 10, 15 translations of the Lotus Sutra or something of just, you know, one of them that people spent time on. But yeah, all that other stuff. Yeah. So that's another thing that I want to get to as well, is trying to dig some of that out and translate it. I want to dig all of that out because I think there are untold treasures in there. But I think even of the things that have been translated into English, even of the ones that are here, you go down to Barnes and Noble and buy it. I think people aren't sure what's in there and I kind of want to help tease out what's in there because I really think that these things are portals to other dimensions. And I mean that quite literally in the sense that I had a conversation with a nun once, a Taiwanese nun at that monastery that I was staying at. And this was actually at a time when I was still a little on the fence about religion and spirituality. I didn't really quite know what to make of it all. And this nun told me that when she reads the Lotus Sutra, she goes to Mount Rajgriha. She goes to the site of the sutra and is among the assembly. And she described it to me as a portal. And I had had experiences kind of like that with sutras where in really deep reading, meditation, the the real root of meditatio, the real meditation on the written word, I found myself being transported to places, found myself actually having some minor to major psychedelic experiences from the written word. And I was wow, that's really interesting. So when I heard this nun tell me that, yeah, when she reads the Lotus Sutra, she goes to the land of the Lotus Sutra, which is what the Lotus Sutra is about. That's <laughs> what it's about is the telling, the preaching of the Lotus Sutra is this kind of eternal event that's always happening. And through that text, you can get to it. Like that's actually the idea of it. What an idea. <laughs> okay, so... That's
0: fascinating, Sutras as portals to other dimensions, sutras as let's say, ways to enter meditative states, which is maybe another way to say the same thing. Mm-hmm. So how do you do that? I mm-hmm. mean you know, I've definitely had experiences like that with sutras in Sanskrit or stotrani. Mm-hmm. you know, in my tantric practice, I've done quite a bit of ritual recitation under you know ritual conditions, during long retreats, and that definitely does a thing, right? It has some kind of special effect on your mind and being, regardless of how we decide that occurs, Mm -hmm. something occurs for sure. So how does that work if we're working with these sutras?
1: Well, I mean, certainly, you know, recitation is one form of working with sutras and then reciting in the original language. That's something else as well. You know, I'm not sure if your listeners are familiar with the origin of this word meditation, (laughs) the English word meditation, as a Latin term referring to reading the Bible. Right. It's actually the (laughs) wrong term, right? Right. What what we call meditation should be called contemplation. Yeah, kind of a thing. But I'm actually kind of advocating the true meditation or the Latin meditation, that deep time with the word, Mm -hmm. you know, In that context, it's the gospel or Bible or what have you. I mean, I always say this to my students that most of the, especially the Mahayana Sutras, you know, these are visualizations. They are inviting you to visualize these things. It's not a story about jeweled lotuses falling from the sky. (laughs) It is an invitation for you to imagine jeweled lotuses falling from the sky. And so, if you read it at an arm's length where it's just sort of maybe a document, God forbid, a historical document about an event, and you never enter it in that way, you keep it at that distance, then it'll stay that. It'll stay a kind of weird foreign document. But if you actually accept the invitation and rather than just sort of reading it as a description, but actually as this visualization, I think actually they are designed to reprogram the mind. Mm -hmm. I actually think the architecture of sutras is such that they do something to the mind if you give yourself over to it in that way, again, by visualizing what they're asking you to visualize and even if they're saying that the Buddha was here and he was with this person this person and this person, you're imagining that person, that person and that person and in that visualization process it Brings you into a meditative state, potentially, and then even into this portal that I'm describing to mm-hmm. where you actually kind of slip into the text, become a character in it. And so for you, this is a kind
0: of meditative reading, not necessarily a chanting out loud, or it's just sitting with the text and really in that meditatio kind of way that we would do with a Latin version of the Bible.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Exactly.
0: And so, just like the Latin version of the Bible is a translation of the Greek and Mm -hmm. Aramaic of the original Bible, does this work in quotes Mm -hmm. in a Chinese translation of the original text?
1: Yeah, actually, I wanted to mention that because I think oddly in the modern Buddhist world, or at least I feel odd for really actually trying to teach the meaning of the sutra, like the words, and not the foreign words, but the actual just what they're talking about in English, you know, and actually getting across the basic ideas. And a lot of times I describe my Sunday class as just a very elaborate vocabulary lesson Mm -hmm. where really the goal is just to become familiar with these Buddhist terms and Buddhist ideas so that we're not translating them back and forth. We actually just have a sense of what nirvana might be. We have a sense of what vijnana, Samnya, and the other skandhas might be. So rather than translating this form sensation, perception, conditioning, and consciousness or whatever, we actually know what they're describing. And that's good for the Pali Suttas as well, but for me, the Mahayana is interesting because of the non-dual ground that they're treading. And what I mean by that is, is that they're really pointing to this kind of non-dual state. And I think there's a certain approach to non-duality, which one sort of takes the noble silence. <laughs> like that is the best answer in terms of non-duality. It's a Vimalakirti's answer. Right. Yes. But then there's a way in which for me that Buddhism goes further than that and kind of actually begins to use what I was calling this architecture of the sutra to where they're not going to explicitly say certain things about, say, the non-dual state or anything like that, because again, that would be, I kind of can't do that. But this architecture sort of talks around these ideas in such a way that, again, if you give yourself over to them, they could lead to an understanding of non-duality without ever actually saying that one thing that strikes you. It's more of that you've gone on this journey or on this process, or in the case of Mahayana Sutras, you've heard you know, monk so-and-so say this, and then you've heard the bodhisattva, whoever, respond with this, and then you've heard the Buddha respond with this, and in that dialogue or even trilogue, something emerges, which is a sort of a dialectical process in terms of thesis, antithesis, synthesis. But with the sutras, there's even, for me, something more mystical going on of really pointing towards non-duality without stepping over that ground, if that makes sense, or...
0: Yeah, in a way you're saying they kind of talk a circle around it and if you kind of look at the center of the circle that they're not actually saying, you
1: get the thing. Yeah, it's sort of like, what's that called? Uh, When you can detect the black hole (laughs) because of what's going on around it. Yeah, (laughs) that's right, yeah. It's
0: so interesting. Help me out here. If I wanted to start getting into this in a way that was meaningful, and I'm a Western person, presumably an English speaker, and I know nothing about this, what do I start reading? Obviously, like, knowing a little bit about the history and background, even, like, the Wikipedia version of the history and background would probably help, but, like, what might I start checking out?
1: Hmm, my podcast? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. I say that, but I'm only half joking because it's tricky. It's really tricky out there in the world of sutras. Because again, you either have a handful of translations and maybe the introduction to that translation will do a good job at getting at the contents of that sutra but I have yet to find a translation of a sutra that contextualizes that sutra within the larger context of Buddhism, if that makes sense. yeah, right. So you get your copy of the Lotus Sutra, you read Burton Watson's introduction, you'll walk away with a good sense of what the Lotus Sutra is about. And then if you go ahead and read the Lotus Sutra, you'll really kind of get a sense of what it's about. But what's the Lotus Sutra next to Vajrayana or next to the Pali Sutras? Where does it fit into the larger picture? That's what's really lacking is that type of Context.
0: And do you feel that that context is necessary in order to get out of it the kind of meditative quality that you're describing?
1: The type of quality I'm describing. Yes. And what I mean by that is is that I mentioned earlier, you know, that I do recognize that understanding the history of these texts, understanding the actual language of them, like what language they're coming from, being translated into, and all of that, I recognize that that's only one aspect of sutras and texts. What I mean by that is is I also recognize that chanting, say, the Heart Sutra in Japanese or Korean or a language that you don't even know, but chanting it, I don't deny the validity of that. I don't deny the efficacy and the upaya of that. But I think that's different than what I'm talking about. Just like doing zazen is different than what I'm talking about.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about what you're talking about. Yeah. Clearly, people are probably not going to get PhDs in the history of this. So how much do you need to really start to dig in with some of these?
1: Yeah, that's where I think you need a little bit. What I mean by that is, is that the richness of these texts and the the ideas that I've been trying to get across Sunday nights, they're not easily arrived at, I'll be honest. Like, it really does take a while of having to really, really grok, you know, what is the unconditioned? Like, what is unconditioned? really mean you know versus conditioned and then how is it that all unconditioned dharmas are like a dream you know talk all night about how unconditioned dharmas are like a dream but that particular statement out of the vajra sutra out of the diamond sutra it's like the richness of that requires some unpacking and it's tricky and i don't know how to get at it Other than teaching it, other than, again, like suggesting people listen to my podcast or whatever, because I don't see it anywhere else in that way.
0: Right. So this whole method of encountering sutras and working with them to go deeply into some of these concepts basically doesn't exist in English, except perhaps in your talks.
1: I don't want to say it doesn't exist in that way because, you know, I'm not aware of everything. But in, in terms of somebody who's in the field, both academically and professionally in the world of Buddhism, I don't see a lot of it. I don't see a lot of that, you know, really trying to draw out the deeper. I don't want to say the deeper message because everybody's out there drawing out the deeper message of these things, whether it's tranquility, peace. Equanimity, all of these things. Everybody's out there trying to do that. And I do think that what I have to offer to the world right now is this sort of for those that might want to read sutras, for those that might be their upaya, that might be their lane that they're going to be in. I want to be there for them in that way. Yeah, I mean, my advice for anybody that's really interested in doing it is just to pick up a sutra and start. Highly recommend the Vimalakirti Nirdesha Sutra that you mentioned earlier. The Vimalakirti Sutra, as it's just called, just shortened to Vimalakirti Sutra, is sort of famously the first place to go. And wonderfully the first place. It's exactly. just such a great sutra. Yeah. And it's such a great sutra. It's one of the few sutras that really openly employs humor as a device.
0: I like how each chapter of it is sort of this separate set piece mm-hmm. of total miraculous freak out. You
1: know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, that's where it goes even deeper because, you know, if you were to pick up a copy of Vimalakirti and really get into it, there's so much in there. You could spend a whole lifetime just on that. But that sutra is actually part of a whole kind of collection of sutras, if you will. It's part of a larger discourse about Vimala, about stainlessness mm. or, or flawlessness. And so I recently taught and I'm translating the Vimaladana sutra. It's an obscure sutra, and it's also obscure because nobody's translated it as Vimaladana, No so stainless giving. Yes. Mm. Yes. And it's an eight-year-old girl, I believe, who schools all the monks and all the bodhisattvas and is revealed to be a Buddha herself. And it's a rare sutra where the female protagonist doesn't need to change herself into a male in order to give the discourse, which is sort of, unfortunately, a Buddhist trope that sort of supports a certain patriarchy. Yeah, In some schools, Buddhism goes only so far with allowing women to be authorities. And then they must miraculously change to males. They must get reborn. Yes. With. Even if they do it miraculously in front of you, yeah. they still must do it. Whereas this Vimaladana is one of the few where she doesn't. And I think that that's great. And I also think it's a very interesting compliment to the Vimalakirti, who is the stainless fame. His fame is not soiled with, I guess, ego and that.
0: I took it as he was famously pure.
1: Oh, interesting. You know, the, the, okay. kind of the reverse... Ah, yeah. I've always taken it as like, if you think of fame and all of the problems that go along with it, and then try to think of a fame that doesn't have those problems.
0: Fascinating. But. Okay, so let's have some fun with this. So let's say we're going to bust out the Vimalakirti Sutra. Are you recommending Thurman or what? Burton you... Watson. Burton Watson. Yeah. Better. You like that better than Thurman. For the beginner.
1: Okay. Yeah. Good. Robert Thurman's translation is impeccable. It has an awesome glossary. It's from the Sanskrit, not from Chinese. So yes. it's actually the Vimalakirti Nirdesha Sutra, which is actually kind of slightly different. Different numbers of chapters and so on. Different right? number of chapters. The Kumārajīva Chinese translation that Burton Watson translated his English from. The Chinese version in Chinese is a little more for the lay audience in China. Yeah. Like in the fourth century when it was translated, it was translated for more a general audience. And then when Burton Watson translates that version into English, you're getting an even more friendly version. Right.
0: Okay. That makes sense. Yeah.
1: But if you're familiar with Dharma and know all of your Sanskrit words, just go to the Thurman one then.
0: There's a lot of fascinating things about this, but what's coming up for me as really amazing is how, you know, if you read Pali suttas, they're pretty pedestrian in a certain sense,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: you know, here's some questions, here's some answers, there's a rote formula for everything. It's kind of like bur burr, 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 You get into something like Vimalakirtanir Desha and it's just like a pound of LSD delivered into your veins. I mean, it's just completely freaky from moment one. And this seems to be the thing about these sutras is they're just, as you're saying, they're it reminds me of what Robert Anton Wilson used to call ontological terrorism, where you know the, the text itself is just trying to destroy your concepts and open your mind to something completely new and different. Yeah. And I just love that about them. And I'm curious, you know, again, just flaunting my like shameful ignorance here, how do you think this tradition, which of course was in India and wasn't that far past the suttas, how did we start getting these Very different documents that feel like they're from another universe compared to the suttas.
1: Mm. Oh, yeah, that's a big one. That's a big one. I mean, just stylistically, if the Buddha was around or the movement started around 500 BC or so, it does seem that there were these several hundred years of this kind of meditation cult, (laughs) you know, very kind of small group and very monastic or renunciatory in that way around 200 BC or so, give or take, it does seem like there was this, I don't know what you would call it, a cultural re-immersion of Buddhism back into Indian culture. So when you have the epic poetry of Sanskrit, that style of poetry, thinking Mahabharata, thinking Ramayana, That style of poetry that is just indicative of Indian culture seems to have gotten brought back into the Buddhist world.
0: Yeah, because the epic poetry, it does have those features of being incredibly Baroque, incredibly gorgeousness, layered upon gorgeousness. And these sutras feel that way, too, with
1: a big dose of trippiness. (laughs) Yeah, and they are definitely unique in that way, too, because they're stylistically sort of this epic poem. But then when you're reading what is actually being said, it's psychedelic. It's wild. And I mean, we're talking, especially if you you get into like Avatamsaka Flower Garland Sutra, Yeah, we're talking, you know, universes within universes within universes. Is like,
0: And that's like one sentence yeah, of yeah. this huge document. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the epic poetry coming back into it, like with the Flower Garland Sutra. But what's interesting about Vimalakirti is Vimalakirti is an oddball of a sutra. It really lies outside of a lot of the mainstream of Buddhism. It seems to have actually always been rather popular. In that way, meaning not particularly monastic, not particularly elite class. And it's my suspicion, based on a few internal things and external things, that I believe it was a play. Oh, really? Yeah. So, like, it would have come to your village, the roadshow, and they'd bust out the Vimalakirti play? And I think the Vimalakirti Sutra is a stage play, if you will, like, is the script. Wow, fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: can you give me some clues about why that might be the case?
1: Um, well, first of all, if you read the sutra and you follow it, it has these sort of what would be pauses for stage shifts. Yeah, that's what I was saying. It's, <laughs> it's made in set pieces. I noticed you did. that. You yeah. did. You said that. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's part of it. There's also what hit me to this possibility is, you know, Vimalakirti, this sutra comes to China, uh, you know, around the third, fourth century, and it becomes huge – Right away, spreads all over. That's interesting. And at the same time, what was really popular was these kind of morality plays. Buddhist morality plays where they would have little stages and put on these plays and explain to the masses the hell realm, the hungry ghost realm, the animal realm, explain the upper rebirth, explain the role of the Buddha, and would do these kind of plays for the public. And when I started learning about those and then started taking another look at the Vimalakirti, I was like, wait, some of these markers, if you will, like these certain pauses in the text seem to indicate maybe this was originally a play. I, again, I'm not sure. There's no...
0: That's so fascinating. And you could see how, like, the scene where they put the whole universe on a
1: cloth or whatever. Right, right. And then that... What
0: What is it exactly? So
1: it's imagining that detail for detail you have drawn an image of the entire, not just the world, but the entire universe, every single detail, you've painted it on this canvas. yeah. And then you fold this canvas up and you stuff that canvas that has the, every detail of the entire universe, you stuff it into every atom of every molecule in every world universe
0: yeah sort of this holographic concept and you could see them actually having like a As, such yes. a canvas and yes.
1: pretending to yeah yeah or the thrones or the chairs coming down from the sky. You could also imagine a kind of a prop, a of these kind of chairs and things like that. I mean, if it wasn't a play, then I'm going to put it on as a play because <laughs> it really needs it. It really calls for it. So
0: Yeah, so this was part of the discussion about how this is an unusual sutra.
1: Oh, right, right. So it's unusual for being, using humor. It's unusual for not ever becoming a script. Sk- School of Buddhism, like you take the Lotus Sutra, that becomes an entire school of Chinese and Japanese Buddhism. In many ways, the Avatamsaka Sutra, the Flower Garland Sutra became an entire school. Vimalakirti just floats out there with nobody really representing it in that way, if you know what I mean. Like there's no monk who's famous for having taught it or anything. It just really seems to have floated around as a Conversion device, yeah, if you will, mm-hmm. yeah, and then you get the famous uh, steely. Like, there's a few of them, but there's a famous one in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, which is the whole Vimalakirti on a big stone, a big steely, and so it was for the public to just come across. They would just encounter. A big stone slab with etchings and in relief of Vimalakirti in his little bed and Manjushri and all of the Devas floating around his house and so then it's the, it's the cartoon version. The cartoon with the scenes, but then in Chinese script, ding 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 etched into it is the whole sutra. Wow. So, again, this speaks to, like, um, populist movement in that way of, like, really trying to get anybody and everybody to hear this kind of a thing. So they've
0: got the graphic novel in stone. Yes,
1: rather than the situation where we have the sutra on the high altar, and we're inviting you to come into the monastery, inviting you to do the ritual, and then we'll share with you the deep knowledge that's in our sutra, that's Which on the altar. is more common for like that's the Lotus Sutra. way more common for the knowledge to, in some ways, be, you know, protected and held. And then if at a certain point we feel that you're ready, we'll tell you what's in it, we'll give you a copy. Vimalakirti, they were like, you know, just throwing it around, trying to get people to read it in that way, or it seems that way.
0: And so it still works in that function for people in that it's a great place to start. That's why I recommend it. Yeah. So what concept is central to Vimalakirti that I think I know what you're going to say, but (laughs) that is, you know, helpful or useful for people to get if they're meditating on this sutra Mm. or with this text? I mean, would you start with the non-duality chapter or some other chapter?
1: Well, with a sutra like that, I definitely wouldn't dive in anywhere in the middle, because it's such a story. Yeah. In many ways, it's actually the sutra that has the most story, like the most narrative structure. And, and funny story. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. And so, to read it all the way through is definitely encouraged in that way. But the central teaching of it, even though there's the entering the gate of non-duality chapter, which is kind of a famous chapter, the chapter on the inconceivable is sort of my, I don't want to say my favorite, but I think it's a real important chapter because there is this idea or this notion of a liberation called the inconceivable. And so it's a state of mind. It's akin to a samadhi, but it is on the inconceivable, which of course by its nature is inconceivable. A lot of what the Malakirti Sutra is describing in that kind of Black hole, way we just described, where it's talking around the idea but not going to say it explicitly, it is talking about this idea of the inconceivable. And the inconceivable is this kind of very interesting state because apparently the bodhisattva or the practitioner who is in the state of the inconceivable can take the entire universe and put it into a mustard seed without shrinking the world or growing the size of the mustard seed. I'm sort of responding to what would be kind of the predominance of the idea of emptiness in the world of Buddhism. Yes. And this kind of influence that the Zen, in particular, Japanese Zen tradition has had on American Buddhism, that's really made this idea of the emptiness, the focus of it. And for a lot of folks, that can be not encouraging right not not an encouraging space and so for me my kind of dharma that i'm teaching and the reason why i like to use these mahayana texts like vimalakirti or the flower garland is because for me this idea of inconceivability the liberation of the inconceivable i would call it the fullness rather than the emptiness Mm -hmm. and what i mean by that is is that you're still like how can vimalakirti put a whole universe in a mustard seed Or, you know, what are they talking about? How does that work? And I think there's a few steps, many steps, actually, that one has to go through in order to understand what that even means or what that's even referring to, this idea of the inconceivable. Right off the bat, if we just quickly try to do a terrible job and try to summarize this idea of emptiness... It would be the Mahayana emphasis on dependent origination, all things being dependent on all other things to be what they are, both physically and conceptually, and therefore anything unto itself, its nature could be understood to be void or empty of that, isn't actually that. Because it's in a way made of everything else. Exactly, right. And so we can do the Zen focus on the empty nature of each individual thing and sort of evacuate all meaning from whatever it is, a seat, table, chair, a light, whatever it is. In doing that practice, we can evacuate it and to arrive at nothingness or emptiness in that sense. And that's a practice and that's to a certain degree beneficial and helpful, but it also, again, could potentially leave people in a very negative voided state
0: and certainly it's always been hard for Buddhists to describe this in some way that sounds positive to a naive listener
1: indeed (laughs) yes and so again the reason why I like to focus on these sutras that are dealing with the inconceivable is because I actually see it as philosophically exactly the same dharma but in terms of its aesthetic presentation it is about fullness Mm. rather than emptiness So, in that, rather than evacuating each individual thing of its specific meaning, we kind of, through the same practice, through the same understanding of dependent origination, and therefore empty of any specific nature, we realize that any one thing can be anything. Or, in fact, everything. Or, in fact, everything. It has sort of this infinite possibility, this infinite potential, And the idea of infinite potential, infinite possibility, sounds way more encouraging to me than (laughs) emptiness, void.
0: (laughs) Yeah, certainly Americans are going to like that a lot more. Yeah, right. exactly. Unlimited potential.
1: (laughs) Well, okay, so then before we go down that road, I want to get back to our Vimalakirti and this inconceivable and putting... You know, the other example of the inconceivable is the ability to take all of the world's waters, all the oceans and seas, and put them in one's pores. That's also part of the inconceivable liberation. Right. And so the question becomes like, again, what are they talking about? What's going on? And I don't claim to have the sole, you know, read or the sole meaning of these things. But my understanding of them is that this Mahayana teaching, it's very, very radical, And what I mean by that is, is that the original program, what I would call the kind of the Theravada original program, it sort of is very terrestrial, if I can put it that way. It's very almost anatomical, scientific in that way. This is how the mind works. This is how the body works. Do these things. And not to say that it's easy, but the steps are there. And it's almost a roadmap, especially if you think of like the Visuddhimagga, literally a roadmap. Here's how to get enlightened. Here's the path of purification, right? And without a lot of elaboration, right? Indeed. Very nuts and bolts. Very straightforward. Here's what you do. And so that program, that original Buddhist program, has been sort of brought into the American culture through the emphasis on mindfulness and that type of practice. And the way I often hear and see that being Taught, you know, it's sort of like almost self-helpy in a way of one is sort of struggling, anxious, stressful, not having a great day or a great life or whatever. And through this practice, you can have a better life or you could be less stressful. To me, that's great. It's wonderful. Everybody should do that. In fact, that's how you describe your own meditation. <laughs> Indeed. Absolutely. But for me, that is not quite sure how to articulate what I'm getting at, which is that a lot of that practice, it keeps oneself still very much between the ears and behind the eyes. Mm -hmm. Call it an ego, call it a self, call it an Atman, whatever, but the improvement of one's life, and I don't want to make it sound like I'm not for people improving their life. Of course I am. But the practice or that program of becoming less anxious or becoming less stressful That is one program, and I think that this inconceivable liberation and what the Mahayana tradition in general is talking about is radically different.
0: Right. Just to be fair, of course, the Theravada, Vipassana-style meditation does eventually deconstruct that sense of self being located in the head behind the eyes down the road as you practice more. But I get what you're saying. When you are used to that style of practice and then you know the Vimalakirti train pulls in, and all the clowns, pull, you Dang, know, jumps Willy really Wonkaville. It's just a completely <laughs> different mood. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's a different mood, but I think a lot of it has to do with what would be called the Bodhisattva path versus the Arhat path.
0: Yeah, and also a path that starts out dualistic and ends up maybe at the very end becoming non-dualistic as in the Vipassana path, whereas when we're doing Mahayana practice, square one is non-dualism. Yes. Right? You're
1: dropped into that immediately. Mm-hmm. If we think of them all together, though, think of the Buddhist project as a whole, though, I think so much of it is about these sort of proverbial blinders that we have on towards this world. The way that our conditioning, call it our samskara, whatever, gets us to think about this world, what's going on in this world, what's important in this world, and all of that, this inconceivable liberation, the Mahayana is coming at it from such a different point of view. Like you said, just now, in terms of it's like starting with the non-dual and kind of like, let's start from there. Not even so much the like, let's start with non-duality, but let's start with that you don't exist in the way that you think you do. Not a slow process to dissolve that idea, but let's just start with that. Yeah. Suck you in the face. <laughs> kind of an idea. From yeah. yeah. Well, but the beautiful thing that happens with this though is from this departure point of dependent origination, you know, it's this idea that, you know, of what we think are computers and worlds and all these things, there's a way in which within the realm of interdependence, they're all equal. They're all equally concepts in that way and insofar as they're concepts they weigh the same they're the same shade they're the same size same everything insofar as they're concepts right i'm with you right if one gets to that point through the dependent origination the realization that all individual things oh if they're all being dependently originated based on other things then all things that i can conceive of from the tiniest dust moat to the largest building a building a moat of dust are equal concepts and insofar as they are concepts again they weigh the same they're the same size same shape and all of that and that equality for me is when you're getting close to being able to put an entire universe into a mustard seed when you realize that they're the same size to begin with
0: yeah, and this is coming at it from a view of almost like total subjectivity, right? In terms of how it exists in the mind, they are the same size, shape, weight, all that. It is A concept is a concept.
1: Right? Including size, yes, shape, and weight. Yeah, all, the, all the Lakshana. Of, yes. Indeed, what we're playing with is Lakshana, and I want to take this opportunity to go back to the fullness that I'm referring to which is that in the realm of qualities or characteristics, what they call Lakshana in the Buddhist tradition, you can do the animita ceto samadhi, where you remove all the Lakshana of any given object and to arrive at emptiness, to arrive at the shunyata vihara, you can do that. But again, for me, the Willy Wonka psychedelic game of the Mahayana is that with the Lakshana, once you realize the tricky nature of Lakshana, Oh, well then, it's infinite again at that point. You can kind of go either way. You can either go towards emptiness or fullness. And I'm kind of a fullness guy because I think it's sort of sounds a little better.
0: Yeah, and so in the sutras that you've encountered, is this fullness typically called the inconceivable, or is there another term for it? A term that is the opposite of shunyata, or emptiness. Ah,
1: tathata. Tathata is... I teach that this word suchness, or tathata, Hmm. would be a kind of fullness equivalent to the emptiness.
0: Okay. And is that supported in the sutras that you have studied?
1: Yeah, I would say it is. I mean, those things are not always contrasted in that way. Mm -hmm. Especially if someone is familiar with what tathata and suchness is, I think I would equate it to this fullness that I'm speaking of. Again, I think if you know what tathata is, you'll pick up what I'm putting down.
0: You know, in the sutras, as I understand it, the Buddha is very rarely referred to as the Buddha, but mainly as the thus-gone one, right? The, or thus-come one. Thus-come one, either way. <laughs> so he's identified with this term, tathata, right?
1: Uh, tatha-agata. Yeah, so it's, but, I don't know if you're familiar with the etymology, but agata means like to arise out of, yes. to emerge. Mm-hmm. And so tathagata is the one that emerges out of tathata.
0: Yes, And so, you know, we're actually tying the identity of the Buddha to this idea Mm -hmm. of suchness, right? So it's not a minor concept. Hardly.
1: Right. Yeah. So what does that even mean to say that? Yeah, this is a big question, which is what is the meaning of tathagata, the thus come one or thus gone one? And the way that I teach tathagata, it's a very Mahayana way of teaching it, but I don't actually think it strays from the Theravada view at all, I have this idea that when one is reading a sutra aloud or even quietly, and especially if somebody's reading aloud and teaching it and explaining it to others, I believe that the present body of the Buddha, call it the Tathagata, is present when one is engaged in that dharmic conversation and that literally the Vaka, the words of the buddha are in the air even though i've read them from the page the Vaka, the words of the buddha are now in the air the sangha and the people were thinking about these ideas were talking about it to me that is the present body of the buddha mm-hmm. that when the dharma is happening that's the tathagata And the only way for that to be is to be present. Like the only way for Tathagata to to exist is in a present mode. Like there's no way for that to happen past tense, future tense, because it's a description for when it's happening.
0: Yeah. And so, when you are teaching the sutras and people are asking questions and listening, you're literally reading the Buddha so it's present in the air and kind of evoking this being or this energy or Mm -hmm. whatever.
1: Yeah. And I get that from the Diamond Sutra, the Vajra Sutra, as I translate it. And, you know, the Diamond Sutra is famous for having these 32 chapters. And, of course, the explanation for that is that those are the real 32 marks of the Buddha, of mm-hmm. the, the 32 Lakshana of the superhuman, are those 32 chapters. And that's for me a very profound idea. But when you read the Diamond Sutra, again, in a way that I'm suggesting in that more immersive way, you kind of begin to realize, oh, they're talking about the ideas in this book. So like when you have the copy of the Vajra Diamond Sutra in your hand, that's the body of the Buddha. Those are the 32 marks. and. Do each of the chapters correspond to the mark? No. Okay. No. Or at least I have yet to be able to do that one for one. You
0: haven't received that term of uh, transition <laughs> <No>. yet.
1: <laughs> yeah. okay. So for me, this inconceivable liberation is a more playful state of mind. I mean, it's called a liberation. It's called a freedom. And so it's this idea of like, being freed by Lakshana, by the qualities and character, being freed from them, being freed by them, rather than this kind of more typical Buddhist mode where we're feeling a little encumbered by these things, we're feeling a little shackled or constricted by Lakshana. And so the meditation would be to let them all go. Yes, That would be one mode. Very typical mode. Very typical mode. For me, it's actually very artistic, very creative. I see the genius in that traditional sense of like the creative spirit, I see it much more in this kind of concept of the inconceivable as a practice.
0: And so how do you practice the inconceivable?
1: Hmm. Read sutras that are about the inconceivable.
0: And what would you say is the best one for that? Is it the chapter of Vimalakirti that you're describing?
1: Um, Yeah, I would say that the Vimalakirti Sutra as a whole and then that chapter so like if you read it and then that chapter within its context is probably the clearest but there is a beautiful little sutra that is called the universal dharma door of manjushri it's manjushri's universal dharma door avilokiteshvara has a universal dharma door or sutra in the lotus sutra but there's just a standalone manjushri sutra called the inconceivable dharma door and it's just a quick sutra about manjushri Asking about this inconceivable state. So that's a pretty good one. Cool. Yeah. And all of these have this sort of flower garland, avatamsaka vibe of lots of thousand petaled lotuses made of non or, you know, normal substances and lots of this very graphic imagery that's really a mark of. Both the inconceivable and the sutras that talk about it is this really rich psychedelic descriptions of the world. Unbelievably beautiful and ongoing and unending, practically. Descriptions. Yes, yeah. very modern in that sense, actually, in terms of fitting with what people are thinking nowadays regarding like parallel universes or these things. It's like you got a 2000 year old sutra that was describing parallel universes and multi dimensional reality. All of that, you know, basically kind of a string theory in a way.
0: So coming at this from more of a Theravada, stripped down, nuts and bolts, psychological, quasi sort of scientific viewpoint, this can just seem like, you know, willful inscrutability or some kind of like just dodge. Mm. You know, like we're just going to talk about stuff that can't be described and so you can never be pinned down or whatever. And so how would you respond to that kind of critique?
1: Hmm. Oh, I suppose a response would be, do you have the same attitude towards poetry? You know, because to apply certain criteria to poetry is wrong. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. You you missed it from the beginning. You haven't watched (laughs) the Dead Poet Society, clearly. Right. Yes. Exactly. And so, yeah, I would say the same thing about these sutras. That, For example, these sutras that we've been speaking about today, they talk a lot about jewels. Yes. Sometimes it's the seven precious jewels. Sometimes it's just all kinds of various jewels. The whole universe made of jewels, yes. whatever. And I've often been asked or somebody inquired, I thought Buddhists, you know, were supposed to be about non-attachment and this and that. Like, how can they be, you know... All about the bling, right? (laughs) And, you know, I understand that, especially if you are used to your Pali Suttas that are like you described earlier, much more straightforward, much more just bare bones, do this, do that, have a nice day. Yeah, these sutras are a whole other world. And so if you're comparing the Avatamsaka Sutra to a Pali Sutta, it's going to seem really, really weird. It won't make any sense. But if you understand, again, the context and you understand the language and why they're doing that, and in particular, going back to the jewel for a second, at least this is the way I understand it. If you understand the Lakshana or the qualities of these jewels, right, and the value that we project onto precious gems and this and that, and the delight that we get from it. And if you do this practice that we've sort of been dancing around today and realize, oh, those are... Interdependent arbitrary projections onto those stones, rocks that I'm not projecting onto piece of cement, a wad of gum, yeah, a wad of gum on the cement. Yep. And so, what happens to a mind that can be liberated to the point where they're perceiving a wad of chewed up gum on the floor with the same sparkly preciousness as a jewel? That would be a different state of mind. That certainly would, yes.
0: (laughs) So it seems like something that you're saying holds a lot of the Mahayana Sutras together is this core concept of dependent origination, which appears right there in the very beginning of the Pali Suttas. It's core, original, Theravada, Buddhism, and yet... All the sutras hang together on that, too. So can you say more about the dependent origination? Or as I always like to joke about it, codependent origination?
1: (laughs) Codependent arising. (laughs) It has all these translations. Pratitya Samutpata is always a good one. Well, first on that, I do want to point out that as far as I know and as far as I teach, the shamatha path that leads to the cessation of suffering that's one side of the practice, and then you have the vipassana, or the insight. And there's a lot of different people that debate about what constitutes insight. But if you think about it, not quite so much about that, but about dependent origination. You know, dependent origination was what made a bodhisattva a bodhisattva, is that their mind is operating on that level of trying to see the deep interdependence of things. And that is, again, that's what constitutes this kind of bodhisattva wisdom that then becomes the foundation for Mahayana Sutras. And so the dependent origination, in a way, doesn't even need to get articulated because it's so presumed at that point. What is dependent origination? What is this foundational Buddhist idea? It's so tricky, you know, because the easiest way that the Buddha puts it, of course, is that if you have this, you have that. I'm blown away. Yeah. But what's interesting about that is that it goes on forever. And what I mean by that is, is that, you know, you take something like tall. So the quality of tall. The quality of being tall, of course, is dependent upon a bunch of short people. And that if there were sort of no difference in height of all beings... (laughs) There would be no such concept as a tall one or a short one. So it's utterly dependent on other things. Utterly dependent on other things. So that's for something to be an adjective, right? To be tall or short or this or that. We kind of need its opposite or the other thing in order to understand what that thing is, right? So that's fine for adjectives. But then it gets a little tricky when you're starting to talk about things in this world. More like nouns nouns, objects, and things like that. But what happens is if you do the sort of the insight practice on this, which is trying to think about this dependent origination, you begin to see this idea that what something is, is a concept. So for example, a chair. What is a chair? And one is inclined to say it's, you know, it has four legs and a back, but do all chairs have four legs and a back? No. And so one starts to get at, well, then if it's not just four legs and a back, what is a chair?
0: Sort of get into Plato there with, you know, some kind of essence of chairness often in another dimension.
1: Yep. But what the Buddhists do, though, is, and this is why the Buddhists are pretty smart, is that they're not just looking at the object, the chair, and this sort of subject of the chair and trying to figure out what it is. Part of the dependent origination is realizing that if we didn't have butts, if the human anatomy was different and we just didn't sit or sit that way, all of a sudden there would be no chairs or chairs would change. And it wouldn't be that we'd have to go around with a screwdriver and a wrench and change all the chairs. They would change just because our butts have changed. Yeah. So there is a deep dependent origination going on in terms of what is a chair. Well, it's dependent on how a human folds its body and sits. If you're following me, there's an even deeper place that this goes. And it pushes really right up against, you know, the goal here, if you will. One thing is to realize that what I think is a chair is dependent upon my anatomy. That's fine. The really tricky part though is realizing that it's not just my conception of myself that then when I go into a room and start looking around, I can start identifying things as chairs. The tricky part is realizing that the very subjective experience of an I, of a self is a dependently originated concept, experience, that's dependent on the chair. It's actually the chair that is making me feel that I'm me. Now, it's not just the chair. It's everything. Everything that I am objectifying, in, in other words, everything that I'm having a subject-object relationship with and othering, it's all helping to reinforce this selfing. Selfing. And so for me, the first step of really getting into dependent origination is realizing that all the various things I'm looking at Individually are being dependently originated conceptually based on the things that are next to it that 's around it, but then the next deeper step is that realization of oh i'm i 'm involved in that too i 'm part of that process that even the very notion of individuality and selfness is a dependently originated concept and idea, just like a chair
0: so all the objects and qualities in the world because those are arising the object called Michael Owens is arising?
1: Yes. But for me, like the really important thing to meditate on and to understand is that it happens at the same time. One does not precede the other. And that's that step from the first movement, which is when one is just looking at the objects in the world. There's still the observer who comes first in all that. Mm Mm-hmm. But when you take that next step towards really understanding dependent origination where even you're involved in it, it's when you realize that even the conceiving mind is being generated by these notions at the same time. And that's really the magic of it for me is when you really understand that we think that all the objects in a room were there before we got there versus actually the whole experience of myself as myself, and the room full of things all come together and arise at once. And it's always happening all the time.
0: It's so fascinating. You know, the next step with this that is typical is to say, well, then if we understand this dependent origination, then as we understand that everything out there is being made by everything else and therefore kind of not there at all, then we are kind of not there at all and we're at emptiness. Yes. Right, and so, how do you make the same move in your mind and arrive at the inconceivable or arrive at the fullness hmm
1: Oh, for me, that works by having a little bit of the yogacara training, so Yogacara is the kind of the mind only school of Buddhism, and I think that that mind only school which coming kind of off of the diamond Sutra off the Vajra Sutra is this idea of all conditioned. Dharma is being like a dream. And so I've often in my classes resort to the dream analogy to prove all kinds of points. you know. And so I'm often encouraging or asking my audience to imagine a dream that they had recently or just a memorable one from the past. And this idea that in that dream that you saw things, you might have smelled things, you touched things, you heard things. And then... The practice, or it's not really a practice in that way, it's a meditation, but it's to think about the nature of those objects in that dream, in that they sure seemed other than me, like that I had to reach out and grab them, right? They seemed other, they seemed sensory, meaning it seemed like it was something I was hearing, not something I was seeing. But what the Yogacarans do is they like to use that dream space to encourage the person listening to then think, oh, yeah, that dream cup or that dream whatever, it sure looked like it wasn't me, but it was. It was out of my mind. And it sure looked like it was something I was seeing, even though I had my eyes closed. And so what happens with meditating on dreamscapes or that dream state is you realize, oh, wow, that's what dualism looks like when it's just me, right? You get this insight into how this could be a dream. Mm. And the fact that you appear other than I do and this microphone appears other than I do, if you just heard what I just said, that's no proof that this isn't a dream because even your dreams appear to be subject-object. And then the next Crazy one is to realize, oh, in my dream, I'm having this experience that I'm kind of cognitively or whatever, dividing up into things I'm seeing, things I'm hearing, things I'm smelling and touching. But actually in the dream, you're not using your ears or your eyes or your body to do those things. It is mind only. It is mind only. And so it's another great space to reflect on what I like to call a monolithic experience. Hmm. It's just consciousness. And doesn't that consciousness state in a dream, doesn't it feel and look just like this when you're in a dream?
0: And it's absolutely
1: convincing. Absolutely convincing. And so for me, if we wanted to do a little dollop a Heart suture on top of our little conversation here, the idea is the no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, or mind, and no sight, sound, t- taste, or thought, All of that for me is speaking to a monolithic conscious experience that we're having now that to the deluded mind, almost by a sort of necessity of karma, divides up into things I'm seeing, from things I'm hearing, from things I'm smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking. And then in a similar magical, contemporaneous, dependent origination way, when I've divided my experience into that which I'm hearing, well, there must have been some orifice through which I was doing that. And, oh, lo and behold, I have an ear. But to the deluded mind, one thinks, oh, this isn't a dream because I'm hearing things with my ears. Yeah. But just because you think you have ears, again, doesn't make this any more real or not a dream.
0: The experience of an ear can be dreamed up exactly, also. Exactly. As you know, I teach a lot of this stuff, and... A question that arises very often that I get to encounter, and I'm curious how you respond to this question is, okay, I get it. It's all a dream. So why care about anything? And why do we care about suffering beings? And are we just going to let everyone starve because we're lost in our solipsistic fantasy? I'm curious how you respond to that, and especially how the sutras respond to that.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think what happens is, is that, you know, for me in Buddhism, this idea of like real, not real, dream state, waking state, all of that is sort of a moot to the question of suffering and not suffering. What I mean by that is that from my understanding and the way I teach, suffering is always real. So the suffering is real. And for me, what that means is, is that if one is in a dream and one's suffering, what difference does it make in that regard? If that makes sense. It does. The, the only thing I would add to that is that the real Dharma for me is always that it's beyond real and unreal. Yeah. So those are going to be some dualisms or dichotomies that we're going to try to avoid in that way. And so this idea of like, dream state, false, waking state, real.
0: Yeah, that's already very dualistic Western. Right.
1: Yeah. And so... I definitely have always, even before my Dharma study, I've always seen consciousness as a spectrum on that front in the sense that we are always dreaming or remembering maybe. And that remembrance has various points of vividness or something like that. Mm. And so I've always sort of been a little bit on board with the Yogacara in that way. But what I'm getting to more is to even dichotomize it as waking state, dreaming state is right In that way and so i always teach the yogachara as this is dream like it's of the same nature as a dream and by that i mean dependently originated we've gotten something wrong and we just keep going with it and heaping on the projections and all of that and i think that that happens in a dream and i think it's happening in the waking state and so i think they're of a similar nature in that way or that again it's helpful to reflect on the dream in order to get at what the Buddhists are talking about, about this so-called reality.
0: That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California. From April 14th to the 19th, I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, Please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash michaeltaft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, You are making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there. So if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offer it to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session.